came out. Some other people had, uh, this one other guy had his, his hands cut off and they just popped right back out as they prayed for him. Those are creative miracles and God still does those. Uh, he was really doing them concentrated back then. And Seymour, before he died, had a prophetic word that that sort of revival was going to happen again in a hundred years. And he said that in 1909. He said only it would happen all over the world. It would be the end time revival. And I know a lot of us have been praying about the latter reign of the Holy Spirit, realizing it's the Holy Ghost that gets the job done. You know, flesh and blood is very limited without the Holy Ghost. And it's the Holy Ghost that really uh, gets things done. It's like Peter, who realized he could do nothing apart from Jesus, was used to win 3,000 in one service, 5,000 in another service. That's pretty good. It's all winning. Two days of work. That's more than a lot of, many, many pastors do in their whole lifetime. But uh, today we're going to be looking at uh, Luke 18. You want to turn there, Luke 18, and verse 1, starting with verse 1. And the title of the message is, When the Son of Man Arrives. The Son of Man, of course, referring to Jesus. Luke 18, verse 1 through 8. Then he spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Will he really find faith on the earth. And then in Romans 14, in verse 22, it says, Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. That's a good, simple definition for what sin is and what sin is not. If you can't do something in faith, it is sin. Well, what is faith anyway? I'm not going to give you the standard definitions, but I'm going to give you a, a special definition that I used in the Romans class and in the Hebrews class. And it deals with the two trees in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 8, it says, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, 
And out of the ground the Lord made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we have this Garden of Eden, and we have Adam and Eve there. And God puts all sorts of nice trees there. It's a fruit orchard of trees, some that we probably would recognize and some that we probably wouldn't, that probably are not here anymore. But they were all pleasant to sight. They were nice looking, colorful, and uh, good for food, nutritious. You know, God could have made the, the world in black and white, you know, with just shades of gray, I mean, he could have done it any way he wanted, but he chose to make it creative and colorful, be creative and make it colorful and and pleasant. So we have God's will expressed here in the garden, and it's a nice place. And he says, you know, in, in Genesis 2, in verse 15, he says, he took man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord commanded man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die so we have all these trees these wonderful trees and the the fruit i can just imagine is always ripe you know it's nice when you go to israel and you have tree ripened fruit every day it's just so delicious you don't have that artificially ripened flavor Fresh from the tree in the morning, you eat it in the evening. And I imagine that was the way it was in Eden. Everything was very nice. The environment was very nice, so nice, they didn't have to wear clothes. I mean, temperature, talk about a temperature adjustment. I work in a place where there's a lot of ladies there, and you'll be surprised at the temperature variations that are requested. Well, just think about, just think about, think about this. You have people that are so comfortable, they're unaware that they have, don't have clothes on. They're covered by the glory of God. It is such a nice place. And God says, live it up, enjoy this place, be fruitful, multiply. I want you to name all these animals. I'm going to show you some animals, you name them. And uh, there's only one thing. I just have one stipulation that I don't want you to do. I don't want you to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree, but everything else you can eat. And you know, he mentions the tree of life. He could have eaten from the tree of life, too. Uh, That was the other special tree in there. There was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, my only request is you can... You can eat 99.99% of everything around here except for the fruit from that tree. And I would uh, like to just define the tree of knowledge of good and evil as representing independence from God. You know, we have a foe called Satan. He rebelled against God because he thought he was hot stuff. He thought he was better than God and he tried to overthrow God led a revolution in heaven. One-third of the angels fell. And uh, he was out running around the universe, and he sees this planet that God is making, and he sees this man, and uh, he has a hatred for God and everything that God represents. And he sees this man, and right away he sets about to try and corrupt him. 
And his whole thing with God is, God, those people, they're going to follow you just because you make them follow you. I know you, God. You just make people follow you. You force your way upon them. They don't choose you on their own. So God set up, he allowed this test to be set up, this, this choice. He, he's pro-choice in this one area. He's, uh, he's not pro-choice in abortion, but he's pro-choice in us making a choice between him and the devil. And uh, he set up this little situation and gave man a choice. He said, all right, you, you guys choose. My thing is, my, my point of view is option A, and that means don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And my adversary over there, he, he says you can eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The adversary came and gave that line to Eve, and Eve chose option B and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because he told her, he said, now, Eve... God's holding out on you. You know God. You know the way he is. He just gave you this wonderful orchard and everything environmentally controlled, perfect humidity and perfect temperature and everything like that. And you guys are just going natural here. And it's just comfortable and everything. You can sleep out at night without worrying about the mosquitoes and all that sort of stuff. Fresh water. Don't have to worry about pollution or anything like that. But... He still wants you to do your dirty. He wants you to keep you under. He doesn't want you to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because on the day that you eat that, you will be like him. You'll, you'll be a god yourself. And uh, Eve bought it. Hook, line, and sinker. She took it. And from that point on, disaster reigned in the human race. It was a catastrophic thing. All creation was affected. The earth's climate was affected. Uh, there's effect, there was a, an effect out in the universe. There was even an effect in heaven because man was connected with heaven. He was God's governor here on earth. Tremendous repercussions because man chose the devil's way over God's way. And from that point on, God sought people who would choose him over the enemy. And from that time forward, it's always been a a choice situation when we go through life. Do we choose God or do we choose the devil? Uh, Satan makes his bid and God makes his bid. Who do we choose? Joshua said, you know, as far as I'm concerned, me and my house, we've already talked this over, the lady and I, and we're going with God. And uh, he said, uh, Joshua said, you guys can, you know, do whatever you want to do, but that's where we're going. And it paid off with uh, Joshua and his family. But man has been confronted with this choice, and uh, God is like on the outside of the whole situation because the governor that he put in charge, Adam, has just handed over reigns to the enemy, and the enemy ran roughshod over the human race. It got so bad at one point, God said, I'm grieved that I even did this thing with man, and I'm going to destroy the whole thing. Ex- what? Oh, there's a guy named Noah. He's, he's one that would choose option A. 
I think he'll choose me. And so he makes an offer to Noah. Noah chooses him. And God spares the human race. But the human race has a tendency to choose option B, to choose Satan's way. And when man chooses God's way, we call that faith, our confidence, our trust, that God knows what he's talking about. See, that's the whole thing. That's what faith is. It's believing that God knows what he's talking about. When God says that tree's bad, he's, we don't have to investigate it. We don't have to take it before Congress. We don't have to run it through the scientific laboratories. It's bad. Don't touch it. Just don't touch it. The world today would try and redress things and, and, and reconfigure things, call black, white, and white, black, you know, so that people get all mixed up in their, their believing and everything. And you get these crazy surveys where 80% of the people in the United States say they're Christian, but 50% of the people in the United States believe in reincarnation. You think, what's wrong with this picture? Well, it's because somewhere along the way, people did not believe God's testimony. They thought, well, you know, I'll take this from God, but I won't take that. You know, I believe that. That's a cool idea, but I don't take that. You know, sin, that's kind of ugly. I don't want that. And, you know, I don't believe in that. Hell, you know. Ooh. So they, they didn't take God at his word. And faith defined, basically, is the conviction that when given a choice, let's just say option A, God's opinion, is superior to option B, or Satan's opinion, or any other option that exists in the universe. God's word is true. What he said and what was written down is truth. We have a whole book that talks all about God's word. And this is true. It's 100% true. Because God said it. And man wrote it down. So it's true. You can believe it. Faith is a relationship, and Aaron has gotten into this some. The bottom line in the whole Christian walk is relationship with God. God wants a relationship. He, he strove to get a relationship with Abraham and was successful. Abraham decided, I'm just going to go whole hog for God. Whatever he says, I'm going to do. And God says, well, let's see about this. Uh, Abraham, I want you to go over in this direction. How far do I go? Just keep on going. I'll tell you when to stop. And Abraham did that. There weren't any uh, highways and byways. There weren't any uh, highway patrol, emergency squad. When you got out in the boondocks, there were robbers and there were wild animals. And here God's leading you along and he says, stop right here. Camp here. So Abraham would camp there. And then God would say, I want you to go down to Egypt. And Abraham would go down to Egypt. And he did those things that God asked him to do. And the obedience was based on the fact that he believed God knew what he was talking about. And he had a little problem with the the child issue. That was a little test for Abraham. But they got it together and had a baby when he was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. Senior citizens having babies. (laughs) Oh, Abraham... Come on, Sarah, breathe. (laughs) Can you imagine the delivery room there? (laughs) But uh, uh, eventually, 
you know, they, they got the child that they wanted. It took them 25 years of trusting God. But faith is having as much confidence in God's word and what God has said as we would in the advice of a lawyer or a doctor or our best friend. You know, if a doctor says, I'm telling you, Aaron, you've got to take one of these pink tablets for the next 30 days every day, and it's got to be precisely at 9 o'clock. Rachel would make sure she got him up in time to take the tablet, and he would take it religiously if he trusted the doctor. If a lawyer said, Aaron, you know, for your church, you've got to do this, and you've got to have this drawn up, and you've got to do this. If Aaron believed the lawyer, he would do it. Or our best friend. If our best friend said, you know, I have a conviction that uh, this is going to happen and that's going to happen, we would take heed to our friend. Well, when God says something, why can't we treat him the same way? Because after all, he made it all. Made the whole thing. He knows what he's talking about. And another thing about faith is that God's word always trumps the reality conveyed by our feelings Our senses, our five senses, are the culture. God's word always is the final say in the culture. When the culture is saying, well, you know, it's all right if two people of the same sex get together and get married. That's all right. We've got to be tolerant. And it's all right for all the religions, you know, to practice in the schools. But, you know, not Christianity. It's too controversial. And, you know, it goes on and on and spews out all sorts of things which are Incorrect, and God's word stands the test of ages. It says something's true. It's true. It's truth. The word is truth. And whenever we believe the word is true and we act on the word as true, that's faith. Well, in Scripture, there were, as, as always, Scripture gives us the real picture. It doesn't try and sugarcoat anything. It gives us an accurate depiction of life, the way things really are. Not the way things are always hoped they would be, but the, thing, the way things really are. And in Mark 6, 1 through 6, we have a, a situation about a hometown boy. A homeboy. And it says uh, in verse 1 of Mark 6, it says, Then Jesus went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this guy get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? You know, the carpenter boy, they got that shop over there, Joe and sons and... You know, cabinet makers, and they make boats sometime. You know, Joseph family. That's Jesus, you know. And they got Mary. Uh, Mary's a mama. And then there's brother James, Jimmy, and Joseph, and Judah, and Simon. You know, that family. And his sisters. Sisters tried out for cheerleaders. All of them got it. (laughs) Bethlehem High School. And uh, they were all offended in him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own kinfolk, his relatives, and in his own house. 
in his own house. Now he could do, doesn't say he wouldn't do, or he decided not to do. It said in verse, says in verse 5, now he could do no mighty work there. Jesus, the matchless Son of God, the wonderful God in the flesh, could do no mighty work in his hometown. Except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Just a few. And he marveled. Jesus marveled because of what? Their unbelief. He said, son of a gun. My, my, my. Unbelief all over this place. He marveled. Jesus was shocked. You know, in heaven, everybody says yes to God. Everybody believes God knows what he's talking about in heaven. They just, you know, believe God's truth. And how it must amaze angels when they come down here and people have the option, well, you know, I might follow God, might not. I might say yes to God, might not. You know, take God, you know, very casually, whereas in heaven everybody snaps to him and says, yes, God, we will. We will do. Well, Jesus evidently had some of this on him because he marveled. He just thought it was amazing because of their unbelief, their non-faith. You know, like uncola. Well, this is unbelief, non-belief. And he remedied, he tried to remedy it by going about the villages in a circuit teaching. What was he teaching? He was teaching the word of God, trying to get people to believe the word of God. Then over here in Mark 4, just going back a couple of chapters, Mark 4 and verse 35 It says, on the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, let's cross over to the other side. Okay, you have Jesus in a boat with the disciples, and he makes this statement. He says, let's cross over to the other side. Now, if you were Dan Rather, and you decided to go up to heaven just to see how this all jived with heaven, and you went up and you asked God the Father... God, concerning this scene down here, Jesus is getting ready to cross over to the other side. Uh, uh, how do you feel about that? Are you, you know, like with him on that? Or are you, you know, what? God would say, uh, we're the same. Three and one, one and three. It's my will for him to go across to the other side. He's, he's doing the right thing. So we have God's will here, and that's the cross over to the other side. Get over to the other side. So it says, now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were with him, just a little flotilla of little boats. And a great windstorm arose. The Greek says genomony, which means a sudden unexpected storm, probably demonic. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. So here we are out in the middle of the lake. God has said, go over to the other side, and... The wind is contrary, King James says. It doesn't want them to go. The wind doesn't want them to go. The waves are beating into the boat. Looks like the whole thing's going to go down. Looks like their number's up. That's what it looks like. But we know that God's will is to go to the other side, right? Because the Son of God said, let's go to the other side. 
So here we got this storm. We're in the middle of the storm. And here Jesus is in verse 38, asleep on the pillow in the back. He's tired. And he trusts perfectly in the Father so he can rest in that trust. He's asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and they said two things that are very strange. Having been with him and walked with him all this time. They said, number one, don't you care? Don't you care, Jesus? Why are you sleeping? Don't you care? He had already told him he cared. That he so loved the world. But they said, don't you care, Jesus? Don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you know, Jesus, we're perishing. You're sleeping back there. We are perishing. And it doesn't seem like you care a thing about us. Evidently, they believed the storm more than they did Jesus. See, they believed the testimony of the storm. The storm actually had a testimony. And that testimony was, we're going to sink you. The wave said, we're going to sink. You're going down, down. And uh, Jesus got up. What did he do? He, he said something to an inanimate object. He said to the wind, I rebuke you. And he said to the sea, water. He spoke to water. He said to sea, water. Peace, be still. He didn't pray about it. He didn't say, God, if it be your will, I pray that the wind would stop and the sea would be still. He didn't fast. He didn't have time to fast. He just simply spoke. He talked to the wind and rebuked it. And he said to the sea, be quiet. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And everybody's going, wow. But no, you know what Jesus said to him? He said, why are you so fearful? I want to know. Hey, hey, why are you so fearful? And how is it that you guys have no faith? You know, we'd almost expect Jesus today to say, you know, I can, I can empathize with you guys. Saw the storm, the, the waves they were getting in. And you guys know about sailing and everything that... If you get too much water in the boat, it goes down. And you know that if you're in the water like that, you can drown and die. I can understand. You've got fear. You got, I can almost I can sense the anxiety in your voice. I can sense it. No, he didn't say that. He said, why are you so fearful? I want to know. How is it that you have no faith? I didn't see any faith exhibited here. Well, what is he expecting? What did Jesus expect him to do? Well, he expected them to listen to what he had to say and to believe it. They could have very easily have stood up in his place, let him sleep, and could have said, Wind, Jesus said, we're going to the other side, so you're going to have to just get out of the way and let us go. Waves, get down. Jesus said to go to the other side, you can't get in the boat, get down. But they didn't exercise any faith. They exercised fear. They believe the circumstances rather than the word of God. Well, in Mark 16, verse 9, we have a similar situation. It says, now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he, he appeared first to, this is verse 9 of chapter, Mark chapter 16. Verse 9 of chapter 16, it says, now when he arose early on the first day of the week, Talking about Jesus' resurrection. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. 
She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, she told the resurrection. She said, it happened. You know, he said it was going to happen. It happened, you guys. It really did happen. I saw him. I saw him. What did they choose? Well, they choose option B. We don't believe you. They did not believe. Unbelief and belief is a choice. Well, they chose not to believe. They did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and they told it to the rest. But they did not believe them either. They chose option B. Here these guys had walked and talked with him all this time. They had seen him do miracles, raise Lazarus from the dead. He had told them over and over, i gotta, got to be crucified three days in the heart of the earth. Then I'm going to be resurrected. It's coming, guys. It's coming. Well, here people are telling these disciples, and they don't believe them. They decide, they make a decision not to believe them. Verse 14, later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table. And this is one of those deals, like Aaron said, where Aaron, Eric says, Aaron, do you have some time? It's correction time. Because he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief. Can you imagine that? Can you visualize Jesus coming in? i got some words for you guys. I rebuke that unbelief that you've got in you. And your hardness of heart. You guys got to do something about that. Why? Because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. After he had already told them what he was going to do many times. They didn't believe him. The disciples didn't believe him. These guys that should have believed him. You have old Thomas. and He, he said, I'm not going to believe until I get to put my hand in his side. So Jesus accommodated and said, Thomas, believe. Put your hand in my side and see for yourself. And Jesus said to Thomas, he said, Blessed are those who believe without seeing, like you guys here today, believing without having to stick your hand in Jesus' side or seeing him yourself. Well, going over to Matthew 17 and verse 14. Matthew 17 and verse 14, starting with verse 14, it says, And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, Oh, faithless. Faithless. He wasn't nice. Jesus was not nice here. He said, Oh, faithless and perverse generation. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately uh, Messiah, what was the deal? Why, why can't we cast it out? And Jesus said, he was, Jesus not being very diplomatic said, because you're unbelief. You got unbelief, so you couldn't cast it out. For surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, and I got some mustard seed while I was over at the 
conference. And I got to look at him. I wasn't going to bring him here, but I mean, you wouldn't even be able to see it. Aaron might be able to see it, and Nancy, but nobody else, because it's like a BB shot. It's like a BB, a little smaller than a BB, but bigger than a bird shot. That's a mustard seed. And Jesus says, if you have just an eensy beensy bit of faith, you can say to this mountain, and he might have pointed to Mount Oreb or one of those other mountains, move from here to there, and it would move, and nothing would be impossible for you. Nothing. No thing would be impossible for you. See, Jesus takes the, the limits off of believing for him. He absolutely says nothing is impossible for you if you really believe it. And that's why in the third world country, in Indonesia, in Africa, and uh, in uh, Asia, people are experiencing all sorts of miracles. They're walking on water. People are getting resurrected from the dead. And the reason is they're simply believing God. They, they just decide to believe him. Now, here in the United States, we have our, our minds that have been conditioned to unbelief. And uh, we always have backup plans in case God doesn't come through. We think, well, you know, if we pray, he doesn't work. We just do this and we do that. You know, we always get a loan. And, you know, I could we go down to payday, you know. Or we could do, you know. Over there, if that mamba bites them, and they don't get an answer from God within a couple of minutes, then they're dead. Or if uh, a tiger is right before them and getting ready to leap on them, if that thing is not rebukable, <laughs> they're going to be his meal. If they want to get across the river and there's no bridge, and God has told them to preach, how can they get across except they walk across on top of the water? Because if they know if they go through the water, swim through the water, that the crocodiles will eat them. So they have to believe God. Here we have a lot of options in our country. And so we have to make a deliberate effort to believe God. And that's one of the reasons, you know, when I, I talk about the offering, that is an opportunity to believe God. It is just a built-in opportunity to believe God. But there's lots of other opportunities to believe God if we want to take them. But over in the West, we've got so many other things covered so that you have all these people that are operating independent. I don't need God. Why? Because I, I can meet my own needs. So he says, uh, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Mount Horeb, move, and it'll move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And then he gives them a tip, a little tip. He says, however, this kind doesn't come out except by prayer and fasting, not meaning that you've got to earn it by praying and fasting, but by prayer and fasting, your spiritual sensitivity is tuned up and you're able to exercise faith. But it's, you know, it's just remarkable. Jesus, the gentle shepherd, gets on their case when there's no faith. Now, here's, here's some situations where Jesus commended people. And the funny thing were, well, they weren't Jewish. Uh, Matthew chapter 9 and verse 18. It says, while he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, my daughter has just died. But if you'll come and lay your hand on her, she'll, be, she'll live. So Jesus rose and followed him. You know who was directing the ministry of Jesus there? A human being with faith, 
a human being with faith said, I know you can do this. You come with me and I know she'll be healed. So Jesus said, hey, I'll go with him. Because faith pulls on the ministry of Jesus. He says, if you'll come, lay your hand on her, she'll live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman had a flow of blood for 12 years, came behind and touched the hem of of his garment, for she said to herself, here's what she's going over and over in her mind, if only I may touch his garment. If only I can just touch his garment. If I can just touch his garment, I shall be made whole. I'll be made well if I can just touch. If I can just get through this. You know, I've got anemia. It's so bad, you know. Don't have much money. I paid it all to the doctors. If I can just get to Jesus and touch the hem of his garment, I know I will be made well. Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith, this faith that you've exercised in touching the hem of my garment, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that very hour. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, make room for this girl is not dead but sleeping. He said, get out of here. She's asleep. Well, she was dead. But Jesus wasn't going to accept the fact she was dead. He was bringing her back. And they ridiculed him. And when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all the land. And when Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, he lived in a house, the blind men came in, and they said, and Jesus said to them, Okay, you guys, look here, or point your head in this direction (laughs) over here (laughs) do you guys I got a little quiz for you guys do you believe that I'm able to do this you guys want to be healed of your your sight you want to get sight back do you believe that I'm able to do this and they said yes sir then he touched their eyes and saying according to your faith let it be done to you and their eyes were opened And Jesus sternly warned him, saying, don't tell anybody. But when they had departed, they told everybody. Spread the news about him in all the country. Then he said to his disciples, you guys, I want to tell you something. The harvest truly is plentiful, but we've only got a few labors. Therefore, you guys, I'm not going to be doing it. You guys pray the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. You guys do it. In Matthew 15... And verse 21, it says, Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Chapter 15, verse 21. And behold, a woman of Canaan came down from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. Didn't even pay any attention to this lady because she was a heathen. She was non-Jewish and his focus was on the Jewish people. Here's a lady that is like heathen, heathen. She's not only not a Jew, but she's in this culture, Syrophoenicia, which is just demonic culture. And here she says she's got a daughter that's demon-possessed and Jesus didn't even pay any attention to her. 
And his disciples came and urged him, saying, send her away. Gosh, she's crying out after us. I'm getting tired of it, Jesus. Oh, she's a nuisance. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But he answered and said, well, let me make a policy statement here. I was not sent. Listen, lady. I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm only ministering to Jews right now. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, still adamant here. He said, it's not good. Ma'am, just don't you understand? It's not good to take the children's bread, this stuff, these, this stuff that's designed for the Jews, the Jewish people, these miracles, they're for the Jews. It's not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to <clears throat> you little dogs. He called her a dog. And she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs. She spoke prophetic. She answered prophetically because that was what was going to happen. The Jews rejected in a, in a measure Jesus as Lord. And uh, the Gentiles the door was opened up for the Gentiles. She got, they got in. So she's saying, Jesus, you know, some folks, some of those Jews, they're not taking the stuff you're offering them, so could we have a little bit of that? Could we eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table? And Jesus answered and he said, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Your, your faith is in the great zone. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Jesus actually went ahead of schedule to heal this lady. He was sent to the Jewish people first, and he, this lady got in the side door because she exercised confidence in his ability to do something for her. Luke chapter 7 and verse 1. It says, Now when he had concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent the elders of the Jews to him. He was a Gentile guy, and he's sending Jewish elders to Jesus, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, because this guy, this Roman guy, he's, he loves our nation, Jesus. He's built us a synagogue, a whole synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself. Don't, don't even come any farther. I don't want you to come all the way out here. Because I'm not really worthy. You know, I'm a Gentile, you know, and you guys aren't supposed to get into our houses, come into our houses. I'm not worthy. I decide I'm part of the occupying army. I'm a Roman, you know. Not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I don't even think myself worthy to come to you. But I know what we can do, Jesus. All you have to do is give the word. Because I know your word always works. Just say the word. Say my servant's healed. And my servant will be healed. Just say that. Because I, I know about this, Jesus. It says in verse 8, I know because I'm a man that's placed under authority. I know how this authority things work. I tell the soldiers, tent, uh, and they, tent, uh, and I tell them, forward, march, and they march forward. I know about authority, Jesus, and I realize you got authority. 
I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does this. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, and he turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well, who had been sick. He said it was great faith, because the centurion wasn't going to look for evidence or anything. He was just going to say, say it, Jesus, just say it. Because I know if you say it, it'll happen. And uh, Jesus said, I hadn't run into this very often. My goodness. He just takes me out of my word. And then lastly, our last section here is faith building. I think you realize that faith is so important because it beckons, it draws the ministry of Jesus. If you want something to happen in your life... Make sure you're walking in faith because faith attracts God. You know, there were a lot of people that Jesus walked by and didn't do anything. They were in need, but there was no faith there. The people that were operating in faith drew on the ministry of Jesus. Jesus would go to their house. He'd go down the road. He'd divert his ministry trip and go down the path and over the bridge and go to the house to minister because the person had a conviction that Jesus knew what he was talking about, and he would do something for them. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. See, God can love us. God can love us and does love us dearly. He loves us unconditionally. But it's possible for him to love us and for us not to please him. And we want to please him. And he says, for he who comes to God must believe, number one, that he is, that he exists. Now, that's kind of a no-brainer. You know, if you come to God, then you evidently believe that he is. He who comes to God must believe that he is. And number two, that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He rewards you if you go after him. James says, if you're drawn near to him, he'll draw near to you. If you don't, he won't. If you don't seek him, he's he's not going to reward you. I think it's heretical. Some ministers today, they talk about faith and the faith movement and all this sort of stuff. And they say, now you can't be asking God for this and that, you know, and and you can't be asking him for this, you know, you know, and that. And people asking him for all these things. I just, you know, we're supposed to just hang here until he comes back and hope he comes soon because we got to get out of here. We're just barely hanging on by the skin of our teeth. And they got congregations like that. Appalachia is shot through with that kind of doctrine. Whereas God says to please him, to make him happy, to make him excited... We believe that he is and that he rewards those who seek him. Who seek him. And you say, well, how does that work? Well, our last scripture, 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1, verse 2. It says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. As we grow in our knowledge of God and as we grow in our relationship with God, 
we will experience more and more grace and peace. Knowing God has all sorts of benefits. Knowing Him personally, drawing close to Him. And it says in verse 3, As His divine power has given to us, us Christians, all things that pertain to life and godliness. That means that God has all the bases covered. He's got all the bases covered. All things is what, Nancy? That's pretty much the whole deal, isn't it? Yeah. All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him, that is by knowing Him, by being rightly related to Him, who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Why have we been given great and precious promises? There's more than a thousand. I don't know the exact count, but I know it's more than a thousand in Scripture. There, have been, there are more than a thousand promises in Scripture where God says, if you do this, I'll do that. Or I will do this, I will do that. Ask me and I'll do this. He says that in his word. He said, there have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Why, God, did you give us exceedingly great and precious promises? He says that through these, by going after these promises, by seeking God concerning these promises, we may be partakers of the divine nature. Partakers means getting a piece of. If I'm partaking of a pie, one of Dora Carter's pies this afternoon, I'm eating a slice. I'm partaking of it. Well, he says, he's given us these promises that we may be partakers of the divine nature, that we may be in the company of God, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. See, the thing is, in our world, our world is actually a battlefield. The enemy has run roughshod ever since Adam and Eve bowed the knee to Satan. The enemy has made this place a war zone. There are needs galore. There weren't needs before sin, but after sin, there were needs and there continue to be needs. Man has made a perfect mess of this world. He's run it into the ground. So there's plenty of needs. The enemy has made sure of that. So God takes these promises. He says, well, you know, I'm going to turn this curse into a blessing. And I'm going to just give these people, I'm going to distribute these promises out through my word. And so he gives more than a thousand out. And these promises are designed to address these needs that Satan has brought on the earth. I want to provide for my people. So I got to let them know. And if they'll believe that I want to provide for them and they'll stand on it and have confidence in me, I'll meet their need on that battle-torn planet. So what happens there is there is a time in which we are driven to our knees to seek answers. We say, God, God, I have a need. And your word says, you've said in your word, you said that it was your will that I should have this. And as we seek him and as we get into deep prayer over things, a wonderful thing happens. We have fellowship with God. We have fellowship with God through our needs. It's not that God sent the needs, but God says, I'll just turn this, these curses into a blessing. I'll, I'll let these needs bring the people to me, and then I can answer prayer for them, and it'll really make them happy, and it'll reverse what the devil has done. So needs just drive us to our knees 
and help us enter into fellowship with God. And then as we get answers, we grow in our confidence of God as being able to be a provider of our needs. As a wonderful father, we get, we get in tune with the characteristics of God, how generous he is, how wondrous he is, how creative he is, how, as Paul said, he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could even ask or think. We start getting in contact with that. We start getting into situations where we just, it takes away our breath when we see him do stuff. So God gets the relationship that he has wanted all along by having us go to him and have our needs met through him. He says, you know, he said in this, this thing in First Peter, he says, by doing this, by going after these exceeding great and precious promises, we become partakers of the divine nature. God rubs off on us. And we escape the corruption that's in the world through lust. What does lust do? Lust says, I want this and I want it now and I'll get it the way I want to get it. And I'll step on other people and I'll take it, I'll steal it, I'll, I'll cheat, I'll lie, you know, I'll get it the way I want to get it. I'll struggle and stress and everything like that to get it. Corruption is corruption. The whole world's experiencing that corruption. They think they're on their own, they've got to get it the best the best man, the, the fittest of the jungle, only the strongest survive. You got all these people grabbing and grasping at things. And God says, I'll tell you a better way. Just come to me. And we can have some fellowship, you know, while I meet your need, you know. Get to know me a little bit better, huh? And uh, it's taken this, this autonomy, this independence, which Satan was trying to inject into the human race. And it's flipped it around so that we become dependent on God. Because he's our need meter. Because he's our heavenly father and he loves us. And he wants to relate to us on a one-on-one level. All righty. Well, I'd like to close with a prayer. Bow our heads. Father, we thank you very much for your word because your word is true. It's forever settled in heaven. It tells us what your desires are for this planet and for us individually. And I just pray for everyone here tonight, God. I pray today. I just pray for a revelation, a fresh revelation of who you are and your desire to meet with them on a one-to-one basis. Your desire to meet needs in their life, serious needs, big needs, God. I pray that you expand everybody's ability to believe you, God. Help them to see the sky is the limit, God. The sky is the limit and that you're able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that they could even think in their greatest day, God. In their best day, you're able to top it by a country mile. I pray that you would reveal that to them, God. Use these words supernaturally in their lives. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, amen.